0: Hey friends, it's Bluey, and I'm sorry that it's been a while, but unfortunately, um, this past week, I was dealing with having COVID, and I didn't have a voice for like four days, and then on top of that, I was extremely congested, and it's only finally started clearing up in the last couple days, so I hope you don't mind. I'm really sorry. I'll try never to do that again, Um, but here we go. Um, I'm back today with a really, 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 really incredible fic. It's one of my favorites. I literally read this fic probably at least once a month, at least. Um, It was the very first bookmark I ever made on AO3, and it means a ton to me that the author of this fic would allow me to record it because it's literally my favorite. (laughs) Um, And I know that a lot of you really love it as well. So let me tell you a little bit about this one. It was first published on October 14th of 2018, and it was completed on December 1st of 2018. We love it when authors complete their work. I should take a page from their book because none of my work is ever completed. Anyway, we're not going to get into that. (laughs) It has 9,509 words. It has six chapters. And currently, listen, it's sitting at only 474 kudos. And I just, I don't feel like that's enough. I feel like it needs more kudos. (laughs) So when you're finished listening to this first one, I need you to like hop into the actual fic. I'll link it in here for you. And I need you to leave kudos on it, because it deserves it. It really does. It's, such a great fic the tags for this fic are slow burn introspection developing relationship pining post lethal light sweet five times and getting together this is a five times plus one fic which is one of my favorite tropes i love it and because it's like well you'll see (laughs) and the summary on this one is five times strike didn't ask robin on an actual date and the one time he did and i know that you've guessed it already this is cracks in the wall by supervi chapter one a splendid idea even though she was just a guest in octavia street it was robin who saw strike to the door after an evening of good food good beer and excellent company while the hosts busied themselves tidying up Maybe it was a coincidence, or maybe it was a coincidence, deftly engineered by Ilsa. For once, he found he didn't much care either way. The result rather fitted his purpose. The purpose had emerged last Sunday as he'd been ordering a certain item online. An idea had popped into his head and then somehow refused to leave. He had contemplated it over the following days, changing his mind at least a dozen times, regarding it in turns as stupid, inspired, unprofessional, splendid, and dangerous. Now, in the narrow hallway of Nick and Ilse's welcoming home, he knew the back and forth was over. When he'd watched Robin over dinner at ease, smiling and joking with his dearest friends, the decision had just seemed to make itself. And so, he found himself asking, Any interesting plans for tomorrow? Robin smiled. I'll just do some packing up. Don't really want to leave it to the last minute. You? I'm taking Jack on that day trip I promised him, you know, the Imperial War Museum, he said, and she nodded to let him know she remembered. Now that actually does sound interesting, she said. He knew that she was kind and polite, and that she was a good actress, but he still chose to believe she meant it. Yeah, sure, guns and tanks, what's not to like? It's not all guns and tanks, Robin, he said with mock suffering, and she grinned cheekily in response. This grin, that was his opening. Strike, never a passive man in his professional life, knew that the last time he had truly taken the fate of a relationship in his own hands was when he had left Charlotte. Ever since then, he would allowed romantic entanglements, and he only used the R word for lack of a better one, to form and disintegrate neither producing a diary for the former nor bewailing the latter. Robin was, of course, a bird of a rather different feather, and it had been more than mere passivity with her. That impressive blockade of his would have served well in the Napoleonic Wars. What wonderful results that strategy had gotten him! Time had not been stopped from running out. Possibilities had not been kept open. He glanced over Robin's shoulder. Nick and Ilsa seemed to remain at a safe distance away. His eyes flickered back to her face. You could see for yourself. He paused just for a second. Want to join us? He said it, he tried to say it, as if it was a common occurrence, as if they did things together every other weekend, just like that, just like friends. But it wasn't, and they didn't. And the unsuspecting Robin stilled. You can be a detective and still miss the clues and hints in your personal life. No one knew it better than Robin, soon to be Ellicott, again. But she couldn't help but notice that things had changed between her and Strike in the last month. They were back to where they'd been before her honeymoon. They talked, actually talked, and worked together, not just beside each other. This in itself felt like a lungful of fresh air after a year of being locked up in a stuffy room but it was different, too. Something had happened the day she'd cried out her sorrows on the motorway verge. A crack had appeared in the wall he directed between them when they'd first met, and then painstakingly maintained for over two years, and words, gestures, and truths had begun to seep through. The information he volunteered, the open criticism of Matthew, even this a nice Friday evening on what was very much his home turf all of this would have been unthinkable to the Cormoran strike of yore, the man who had managed their friendship as if he were in a witness protection program. So it was different, lovely, but different. And if you added the weight of her long-buried hopes and fancies, sometimes she just wasn't entirely sure how to navigate this old, new relationship. "'Join you?' she repeated. "'Yeah. You said you've never been,' and he added. You can keep an eye on Jack when I take a fag break, he said. I'd laugh, but if I go, we both know that's exactly what's going to happen, she said dryly. And he spread his arms and acknowledged guilt. But wouldn't Jack be disappointed he'd not get you all to himself? Please. He'd be thrilled to meet another witness to his hospital heroics. And I ordered this kitty guide and had it delivered to Lucy's, so I expect he'll be all ready to show off and talk our heads off. That was nice of you, she said, but it was not an answer. Certainly not the one he was hoping for. Funny. He'd never really considered she might refuse. His own reticence had always seemed like the biggest hurdle to overcome. Well, an unfamiliar tingling in the tips of his fingers told him he was definitely considering it now. So what do you say? He ventured again. We'll explore the museum, have pizza in the cafe and hopefully no one will scream puke or set off the security alarm she was looking down now and he couldn't even try to read her eyes she'd always been the one who'd wanted to shorten the distance that marked their friendship but that had been a long time ago did she not want that anymore or did she think he expected more of her than she was willing to give now or maybe ever he thought that the company of a child, whose mouth seemed never to close, would be a clear enough indicator of what this trip was not going to be. But perhaps he'd thought wrong. Her silence went on too long. He had not prepared an exit strategy. His mind scrambled to formulate one now. He opened his mouth to speak. But just then, she looked up and smiled. Blimey or crikey, Robin asks, holding up two printed mugs in the museum gift shop where the three of them have retreated after as much exploring and pizza as they could handle. Strike, who is discussing the merits of a Spitfire construction set with Jack, looks up and narrows his eyes in consideration. Neither, he decides. But if they have a bugger one, well, I'd pay good money for that. She shoots him a glance, all the more confused for his overdone northern pronunciation of the word, but his attention is turned back to the toy. He's grinning, a grin big enough to crinkle his eyes, and in a flash of understanding, her heart skips a beat. Chapter 2. The Pigeon Loft. The Chinese takeaway had been sitting on the kitchen counter for a good 20 minutes, emitting the most enticing smells and regrettably getting colder with every passing second, when Robin, seated behind her desk, finally sighed in defeat. Your diet has hardened you, I think, she told Strike, who was occupying the sofa. But it's seven o'clock. I haven't eaten since noon, and though I know, she said ruefully, that I was the one to suggest we finish this file before we eat, I think I'm about to keel over. Recognizing it as the cue it was, Strike hauled himself to his feet. You suggested it because you expected me to say no, he said. You just wanted me to play the procrastinating cormorant to your diligent Robin. Don't think I'm not on to you. He shot her a stern look on his way to the kitchen annex, and she laughed. This, the late hour, the dinner soon to be shared, was, to Robin's very secret delight, no means an isolated incident. More and more often, if they found themselves together in the office at five, They would stay after hours to swap theories, catch up on paperwork, or just do anything that needed to be done. It felt a lot as if they were making up for lost time, although she couldn't imagine either of them voicing such a thought out loud. And anyway, whatever it was, she loved it. She looked forward to those moments, just she and Strike in the same old office, no clients, no subcontractors. It was like before, except better, frankly. In those moments, She never thought of how childishly Matthew behaved as they proceeded with the divorce, or how hard it sometimes was to talk to her mother these days. "'Will you put the kettle on, please?' she asked as she attempted to clear some space on her desk. "'Sure. I have beer upstairs, though,' Strike said, and frowned. He'd been about to say he'd just go up to his flat and be right back with their drinks. That would be the usual thing to do.' Robin would not bat a single golden eyelash at that, but something made him hesitate. Something, surely the same something that had prompted him to invite her on his and Jack's museum trip. So many times he had found himself performing detailed autopsies on the corpse of his relationship with Charlotte that he could almost hear, beware of zombies, uttered, not surprisingly, in the voice of Dave Polworth. He was always willing to reflect on this fight, and that lie, this word, and that look, to dissect feelings, to categorize them, to give them names. Yet with Robin, he'd been reluctant to do any such thing. He knew it was there, that something. That nameless feeling he'd circled and tried to keep in check for so long. He'd tried not to disturb it, not to wake it. Any attempt to let it out of its bounds had ended in disaster but it was growing, shifting, slowly taking control, like now. You know, he said, in what he hoped was a perfectly casual tone, why don't we just go upstairs, grab the files, and I'll take the food. And as good as his word, he promptly took the plastic bag that contained the takeaway from the counter and turned to Robin. Now that was a clear instruction if she'd ever heard one, and yet... She stayed where she was, making no attempt to move from her chair. You mean, go to your flat, she said. She tucked a strand of hair behind her ear. No, to the pigeon loft. She held up her hands defensively. I'm just surprised. You do realize that the first and only time you took me up there, I had to get an actual leg in the mail first. Look at you, joking about severed body parts, he remarked makes me proud. But Robin wouldn't be so easily distracted. I mean, it's your hermitage, hideaway, hidey-hole. It is, as word on the street has it, Cormoran Strikes Sanctuary, she said, relishing every silly word. It took some effort not to roll his eyes. It's not a sanctuary, Robin. It's just bloody small, The pigeon loft bit was not entirely a joke, and anyway, for all you know, I might have been throwing wild weekend parties there all along, he said. He'd meant it as a joke, perhaps not a great one, but certainly innocent. But as soon as the words were out of his mouth, he knew it had been the wrong thing to say. Robin blinked. She looked sideways and smiled a bit crookedly. You're right. I wouldn't know. You wouldn't have invited me anyway. This was said quite brightly. She did not want it to sound like a reproof, because it wasn't one, not really. He was, had always been, the boss, the mentor. As such, he'd always had the right to set the rules. Her inability to stick to them, to disentangle the many threads that bound her to him and this job, was not really his problem, was it? So no, she was not scolding him, but stating a fact of their relationship, certainly. And if it felt a little bold and a little rebellious to do it, if her heart beat a little faster as she said it, so be it. Strike could not hear Robin's heartbeat, but he could see the slight blush that now colored her cheeks and hear the determined faux cheerfulness of her retort. That feeling he was so slow to name, and surely this present plummeting of his stomach was somehow related to it, he knew it needed to be domesticated brought into the light, and examined at last. So why not start now? Why not acknowledge that while he'd maintained the distance between them to protect himself, he'd hurt her along the way, this girl who was so open and giving, everything he was not. Well, he said. He put the bag of food on her desk. I've said too much, Robin thought. He was going to diplomatically hint it was better for her to go home now. But he extended his hand to her as if to help her up, and when she took it, he wrapped his hand around hers and squeezed it gently. Well, he repeated, come on, you're invited now. In the softest of gestures, his thumb stroked the skin of her hand. It felt like an apology, and she squeezed his fingers back and accepted it. By the time Robin gets up to leave, the food, the beer, and the specifics of the case are a distant memory. He doesn't ask her if she wants him to walk her to the station, just moves to put on his coat. Her reflex is to tell him it's not necessary. She'll be perfectly fine. But he's in the middle of a story about a 12-year-old cormorant, his Uncle Ted, and a legendary Arsenal game, and so, just this once, she keeps her silence. She smiles at him when he opens the attic door. And follows him down the stairs chapter three the green-eyed monster the morning started innocently enough robin arrived in the office at five to nine it was disappointingly empty but there was a post-it note stuck to her keyboard and a mug of tea next to it the note said summoned by bloody just in case panicked call at eight thirty. back before 11. The tea was not too strong, not too weak, and still satisfyingly warm. With a sigh of contentment, she made herself comfortable in her chair and got down to work. It wasn't until much later, when all that was left of her tea were a few meager drops, that she moved from her spot. She stretched her arms, put on a fresh kettle, and headed to Strike's office. She had a meeting in the early afternoon and needed to retrieve a file that he had apparently appropriated. And that was when she saw it. As soon as she opened the door, the suit hanging on a peg on the wall. Strike was not much of a suit man. He'd make the sacrifice if a case required it, and he'd occasionally worn the garment, always the same one, no less, for dates. Not that he'd ever announced that to Robin, but what did she have her well documented investigative skills for? There'd been one more occasion, of course, but. But well. She didn't think he was planning to crash a wedding in the nearest future. And this wasn't for work, either, that much she knew. There really was very little about work that they didn't share with each other now, and certainly nothing of any importance. A date, then? She touched the hem of one sleeve, rubbed the fabric between her fingers. She hated feeling jealous, despised the icy coldness that was now spreading behind her breastbone, it was such an undignified, humiliating feeling. With Matthew at least, even before she'd found out the whole truth, her dislike toward Sarah had been justified by her status of the significant other. But what right did she have to feel jealous of the Ellens, the Lorelai's, the nameless tipsy girls? To compare herself to them, to imagine them with him? To feel bile rising in her throat every morning that she realized his flat had stood empty the night before? None. Who was it going to be this time? She moved abruptly to the window. It was November already, but the office was unpleasantly stuffy today. She opened the window, letting the cold air hit her, and took a deep, steadying breath. In some twisted way, the jealousy had served a purpose. It had been the first sign or it should have been, at least. She'd felt its toxic prickles long before her feelings for Strike had gone beyond respect and friendship, long before she'd let herself think of him in terms that were romantic or physical. She should have let that knowledge sink in. She hadn't, of course. Just one of her many failings. Her stomach clenched painfully. There was a bloody suit, hanging on a bloody peg on the bloody wall. What a silly girl she was. Was it her inexperience, her naivete that had lulled her into a false sense of security over the last few months? Somehow she'd forgotten that this was even a possibility, but why wouldn't it be? As wonderful as it was, friendship was friendship, but other things, things she sometimes found herself wondering about when she looked at his hands or his lips, were reserved for Robin, at the sound of his voice from the outer office, she almost jumped out of her skin. In here, she replied, hoping she sounded at most half as shaky as she felt. The guys a nutter we're charging him double, Strike said, entering his office. He quickly took in the scene, Robin standing before the open window, tense, pale, and looking more than a little spooked. Everything all right? Just looking for the Wilson file. She cleared her throat, touched the side of her neck self-consciously. Yeah, he decided. Everything was not all right. Forgot to give it back, didn't I? Sorry. Must have jammed it in a drawer when Miss Allen barged in yesterday. Just wait a second. He walked up to his desk. The file was probably there, and most likely in the top drawer, but he chose to open the middle one and began an unnecessarily thorough and silent search of it. He still half-expected her to just throw in a non-committal comment about their pushy client—this was Robin, after all—but she seemed odd today, off her game. So why not give the true and tried method a spin? And sure enough, like a small, curious animal, she fell into the trap his silence had set. "'Going out tonight?' she asked after a while, and when he looked at her, frowning, she inclined her head toward his suit—he'd forgotten it was there. Had she found out? Uh, no, I need to get it dry-cleaned. She nodded and dropped her gaze. He, however, kept looking at her. I do need it for next week, though, he explained. My aunt and uncle are coming up next week. We're going to see a play, and casual wear for the theater is just not done in my aunt's world. He could see the change in her at once, the strange tension left her body only to be replaced with a blush that now spread over her cheeks and neck. And just then, as if it were a moment of enlightenment in an investigation, the puzzle rearranged itself to form a complete picture. What did you think I needed it for? He wanted the question to sound neutral, conversational, but for all he tried, he still thought it simply came out gentle. Robin shrugged. Nothing in particular. He was an utter tosser to rejoice in her unhappiness, no matter how temporary. But it meant hope, and hope was a precious commodity. So rejoice he did, just a tiny bit. He could kiss her now, he realized with a jolt. He could kiss her, and chances were she would not slap him. For a moment, he let himself consider that possibility. No, If anything was ever to happen between them, it was not going to happen while she was still officially married. He'd be hard-pressed to explain why this conviction had taken root in his mind. It wasn't like he'd never dated a woman who wasn't quite divorced yet. The best reason he could come up with was also the simplest one, that it was Robin. She deserved time, plenty of it probably, a clean start, and a lot more. But this at least he thought he could give her. But the cautious joy that filled him now was so pleasant that he wanted to share it with her. He waited until her wandering gaze met his and said, "'Couldn't have been a date, you know. I'm not seeing anyone. I haven't been seeing anyone since Lorelei and I broke up.' Robin flinched, caught out. She opened her mouth as if to say something, to assure him it was none of her business, to tell him she wasn't seeing anyone either. The words never materialized. It didn't matter.' He only hoped she understood his message. And anyway, he'd been pondering how to broach a certain topic for a couple of days now. Funny you should bring up the suit, though, he scratched his head. Apparently it was his turn now to display textbook symptoms of nervousness. I've been meaning to talk to you about it. About your suit? She asked dazedly. About the theater, he smiled. My aunt and uncle asked if I could bring you along. In answer to her surprised expression, he supplied, They'd like to meet you. They've heard so much about the one and only Robin Ellicott. He neglected to mention they'd mostly heard about her from Lucy, and he strongly suspected Ilsa's mother. It was beside the point. Whatever they'd learned was most likely true. Oh. The Robin who stood before him now was very different from the forlorn Robin he'd happened upon not fifteen minutes before. The moment Joan and Ted met this lovely, joyful woman, well, "'That's so nice of them. I... that's the last thing I expected. Of course I'd love to meet them.' And with an impish smile, she added, "'You've met my parents, so I suppose it's only fair.' (laughs) Was his only answer to this. He could only guess how her parents probably still felt about him. Robin swiftly turned to close the window, then faced him. "'So what did you say the play was?' she asked the four of them head to the bar during the interval Robin is deep in conversation with Joan but not so deep as to miss strike placing his hand on the small of her back to help her navigate the crowd the weight of it sends bright hot sparks throughout her body down her arms to the tips of her fingers down her thighs to the tips of her toes up to her exposed neck to the tips of her carefully done hair when she gets home, she pulls out a cardboard box from the bottom of the wardrobe and places her ticket stub inside, next to a solitary champagne cork. And that's the end of today. I'll be back in a few days with chapters 4, 5, and 6. I have to tell you, chapter 5 is my favorite, so I'm super excited, super excited to get to do that one for you. I hope you enjoyed this one, and I hope you'll come back for the next three chapters. Bye!